This is Girl on the River, the podcast. Whole crew, come forward to row. Hello and a very warm welcome back to Girl on the River, the podcast for episode five of season two. Now, although it's only two weeks since my last episode came out, for some reason it feels like forever. I think it's just because the rowing world has been really busy. In recent weeks, we've had Henley Women's Regatta and Henley Masters. I wasn't unfortunately there at either of them, but I really enjoyed hearing your reports and seeing all your photos. And I've heard some really lovely, enthusiastic reports from various smaller sometimes informal regattas and it's just lovely to see the rowing world getting back on its feet again. So let me know what you've been up to in the last few weeks. Thank you so much for all your lovely comments about my last interview with Robin Winkles who founded Row to Recovery, teaching rowing to people who have had cancer treatment. It seems to have really touched a chord for lots of you and Robin herself has since told me that she was able to listen to the episode with her family on a trip back home, which was a very emotional moment for them all. If you missed it and you want to catch up, you can find it either at girlontheriver.com or you can search on your podcast app. I'm on all the major apps and you can subscribe to Girl on the River there to make sure that you don't miss any episodes. Now, there's another thing I want to thank you for. Girl on the River is, at the time of recording, about to hit a major milestone. I'm just seven downloads away from the magic 10,000 downloads, which is considered in the podcasting world to be the big milestone that every new podcaster wants to hit. Nothing actually happens when you reach this point, but it is amazing to have got there. And I just really want to thank every single person who has listened along and shared it with their friends. Please do continue to support the podcast by listening in, subscribing, liking, and leaving reviews. The more you can do all of this, the more people it reaches because the podcast algorithms love to hear from listeners and they prioritize podcasts that have activity. So if you can take a moment to go onto your podcast app and give it a like or a review, I would be incredibly grateful. You can also help to keep the show on the road by signing up for the Girl Squad, which is my Patreon scheme. For a monthly sum of as little as £3, you will help to cover the expenses such as hosting and editing. And in return, you'll get things like bonus content, early access to episodes, and even occasional Girl on the River merch. And you can find it at patreon.com forward slash girl on the river. My guest today, Camilla Hadland, has a voice that many of you will recognise already. Having started rowing as a junior at a small club, she won a place in the under-23 women's eight and competed at the World Junior Championships in 2010, where they won Britain's first ever women's gold medal at that event. After university, where she was president of her university boat club, she stopped rowing regularly, but moved over into coaching. Camilla fell into commentating, but she soon found herself in demand. And in 2018, she won World Rowing's first ever commentating competition for a spot commentating at the World Cup in Serbia. 
And since then, she's regularly commentated at international events, and she will be part of the commentary team at the Tokyo Olympics. Now, having done a couple of stints commentating at my own club regatta, I was fascinated to hear all about her experiences and to glean some wisdom from her. Camilla, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I've been listening to so many episodes and to be here with you, this is quite surreal. So thank you so much for having me on. Well, it's lovely to, I know I know what you looked like already, but it's lovely to put a face to the name and actually see you face to face. I know your voice better than I know your face. So it's a real pleasure. I would love to start by talking about your rowing career because you started as a rower quite young, didn't you? Yeah, I was um, I, I was a school rower, but not in the kind of sense of through a private school system. I picked up rowing off the back of an ARA initiative, as it was at the time, right, as per now British Rowing. And they set up a scheme called Project Awesome. And so when I was in year seven at school, they kind of came in and delivered a whole I guess, introduction to indoor rowing and then with a view to going on to rowing on the water. And so, yeah, I was sort of 11, 12, had never, you know, my parents aren't sporty and you know, I hadn't really found my mojo with any sport at all. I was really not an athletic kid. Um, but yeah, I picked it up fairly early in the grand scheme of things. That kind of J12 started on the indoor rower and, and sort of went from there, really. And did it? did you take to it straight away? Um, take to it. I mean, I enjoyed it. I, I feel like I was very powerful, but not perhaps refined or didn't have very much endurance, um, which again, I discovered quite quickly when they sort of jumped it, jumped us in to these Monday night indoor rowing club, you know, after school clubs. And they'd say, okay, for the warm up, we'll go and jog, you know, five laps around the sports hall. And by the end of it, I was like, not really sure this is for me you know like (laughs) not sure I can continue on with this I wouldn't say I was I sort of took to it like a a duck to water um I think the thing that I found was that it was something that I could get quite good scores at quite quickly on the indoor rower I was quite large for a, a year seven girl and so pushing and putting power down was actually really quite rewarding for me and to be getting really good positive feedback from coaches in any sport was quite the surprise I guess and so it did spur me on quite a lot to want to join the the boat club and to to want to learn to row on the water but that was a whole different story and I really did not take very quickly to that at all they used to call me queen of the Atlantis at uh, <laughs> at Avon Boat Club where I learned to row because I capsized so many times Patricia in that single and because it was a small club you know even throughout my kind of early junior years because I had sort of shown some kind of promise I guess from a power perspective the thought for my well career into rowing was you know go and get good in the single because that's the kind of basis for everything if you want to go on to do junior trials or you want to go on to do anything you know you're really versatile if you can row a single well you can row anything well so I kept getting pushed out in this ailing single skull and kept turning it over it was never the right way up (laughs) and uh, (laughs) yeah eventually I got there but yeah it did take a bit of perseverance and I was absolutely not 
very technically gifted but if I kept it upright I could sort of shove it along (laughs) Um, and I just really enjoyed you know anything shorter than 750 meters if I could keep it upright that was fine but yeah my technical prowess was definitely not apparent from from the start and I had to work on that. (laughs) Well it sounds like persistence and perseverance are a big feature of your character and your rowing career. Yeah, I guess so. I think when you come through a small club setup and you learn to row, again, as I say, not through as a junior rower, the sort of big junior squad setups, you kind of have to be very motivated as an individual to keep turning up, right? To keep turning your single back over, to turn up and do your 2K down at the rowing club when no one else is trialing to submit your score at junior trials it's you do have to be fairly single-minded in that sense but I did always enjoy being part of a wider club and a wider team and you know the I did reap the war awards later on in that there were more kind of girls that I got to row with who were a bit older than me and I had to be good enough to row with them and so that was a really good motivator so I guess yes there was an element of being persistent and you know nagging my parents to take me down and if even if I capsized off the start of the race at Beaudley Regatta which was my first ever regatta in a single I was driven back in a tin blanket Oh, that was my son's first, my son's first ever race was, I think it was Evesham, actually, he capsized a single about that age, had the sort of ride of shame with the foil blanket. (laughs) Right. And do you know, that was my first experience racing in a single skull. It was very similar, you know, Evesham was down the road from me at home. And so I had done a couple of Evesham regattas after that point. But yeah, doing doing that drive of shame uh, <laughs> when you know all of your clubmates are watching on the bank and they were you know mum and dad were excited to watch you and then they go where's Camilla she's not, <laughs> she's not rode past us yet and delivered back onto the landing stage at the end so yeah I guess I thinking back I'm like how did I ever come back after that I'm sure you know I should have been running for the hills going I'm never touching that thing ever again but you know something obviously was spurring me on and again the fact that I took to the ergo quite well which is usually a lot of rowers demons right is that they don't enjoy the indoor stuff I I kind of could deal with the land training and I enjoyed submitting scores on that side so the water stuff and being outside was something that I could work on on top of that and yeah I I guess it just came in the end well it certainly came in the end didn't it (laughs) I was, do you know, I was, I was never the fastest junior at all, you know, by any stretch. I made it into the junior women's eight at the Worlds by like the skin of my teeth, but it really was, yeah, it really was a special experience. And I felt like it was a lot of hard work of, you know, training by myself in that single through those early years. And then eventually kind of joining up with a couple of the girls at Evesham and Gloucester who I ended up rowing with in those sort of J16, 17, 18 years who were a bit of company. They were in similar situations to myself and it was that nice kind of small club feel of all of us were kind of individuals at our own club all trying to do the same thing that I was doing. And so when we came to together as a unit and raced in pairs at trials and did that like kind of long distance, you know, those grim 20k sessions you know you at least had a bit of company and and so yeah that year that I 
did end up making the selection for the GB team for the Junior Worlds in 2010. Um, it felt like a big kind of combination of of a lot of hard work. But uh, yeah, it was it was very um, very squeaky <laughs> that I got into it, and I sat in the three seat feeling very very lucky for my place. <laughs> well, it's interesting because I've heard Baz Moffat talking about being the sort of the person who squeaked into the eight. And she's talked about feeling an awful lot of pressure not to make a fuss about anything, just to sort of, you know, work harder than anybody else and, and never complain, never sort of raise any issues. Did did you feel that kind of pressure? Um, I, I guess so. I, I think... Again, the thing that carried me through a lot of my junior years was my ergo scores. I, you know, my stature, I'm only five foot seven still. I've not grown anymore since then. Um, but yeah, not really typically, you know, row a build even at that age. You know, a lot of the girls that I rode with were all, you know, five, 10, 11, six foot even, you know, a couple of girls on the boat, six foot one. And so I think that I had to work harder to compensate for the fact that I wasn't that kind of shoeing with potential that even if I was, you know, that little bit slower, but a few inches taller, you know, that's all things that a coach can say, well, actually, if we just work on your strength or your endurance or your couple of bits of technique here, you've got the build for it so that it will all come naturally. You know, that was never something that was pinned on me as a this person's got heaps and heaps of potential to go to the Olympics in however many years time because they're they've got arms and legs as as long as a giraffe um so I I guess so and and through those years we had a sort of turnaround of girls that had injuries and so I ended up rowing with a lot of different people and I was always the person that sat in the bow seat and kept things consistent and you know whoever my partner is that I was going to that set of trials with I I just had to get my head down and keep the boat going in a straight line and and you know hopefully give good feedback but yeah I was always very conscious that I couldn't kick up a fuss massively um, or, you know, I couldn't afford to put a foot wrong. And yeah, it was difficult. I did get quite injured actually through the trials process towards the end. And I think I'd had a very long year. And so when we reached the sort of final trials process for that eight, I had quite a bad, bad like sacroiliac joint injury which was really tough to kind of speak up about at that point, much like Baz was saying, right? I know that Baz had a really similar experience, but at a much higher level at the senior standard, which I can imagine is even more kind of pressured when that's your career and your your job and your life goal, right? To try and get into that Olympic crew. But even at junior level to kind of put your hand up and say, I'm not sure I should be doing this seat racing and I'm not sure, you know, is what I've done enough and I always kind of worried about that whole year of you know you go through so many trials at that well at any stage of trying to trial to to make any team whether that's junior under 23 senior or olympic you just keep thinking have I done enough you know have I done enough at February trials have I done enough of my 2k test my 5k test and I performed really well that year I had a really good season I'd finished second on stroke side at the April trial assessment. So I knew I was going really well and I should have been in those top four seats into that eight. But as it came down to the crux and I had this injury that was sort of brewing, I just thought, oh gosh, should I really jeopardize that place? And luckily I had a really good coach at the time, a guy called Aaron O'Dell, who coached at Gloucester and at Evesham 
who sort of you know guided me through that process and made sure that I recovered well and I did end up getting that seat in the boat as I say sort of squeaked it through the fact that I was injured and had a few good sets of results to to fall back on but yeah it is it's really hard isn't it when and I can imagine it only gets harder to to make sure that you walk that fine line between looking after your health and your body and you know, I think back now as a junior woman looking after yourself but also trying to perform and, and meet those goals and expectations that you've set for yourself and and put all of that good training to to use right you want something to show for it it's it's really tricky and I think something that uh, looking back now it would have been great to have had even more support through that process which again coming from a smaller club where you know I was the only person that had been to GB trials at that level for the first time in 10 years yeah you know, there was nobody else that I could ask and say you know who should I speak to about this or what what do you think I should do in this situation my coach no, my coaches were fantastic and they were great but they they weren't operating at that level consistently all the time much like you'd get at you know some of the high performance schools or even the bigger clubs in the bigger cities and towns so yeah it's um it's an interesting question Patricia. I feel like it yeah you've you've sort of sparked something in me that kind of reminded me of all of those times. And one other thing in that regard that you've spoken about is body image and your struggles with that when you were part of the squad. So tell me a little bit about what was going on there. Yeah, I guess as I alluded to at the beginning of this interview, I was never a particularly athletic person. As a younger girl when I found rowing I was quite big I was quite cumbersome you know I'm about as broad as I am tall (laughs) Um, which again gave me my strength but until I sort of started to develop and get better at rowing I was very conscious of that fact and I was always the kind of last I know it's very cliche to say last pick in PE for anything that involved kicking a ball or running around a track. And so I was very conscious of the way that I looked. And then you sort of go through school and I was lucky to have some really supportive you know, friends and, and teachers, but I was always quite concerned about the way that I potentially was looking as a kind of stronger, you know, bigger female, but rowing made me feel really comfortable you know and all the other girls that I trained with were great and that was you know was one of the things that I was keen to stress is that actually rowing was a safe sanctuary for me from a body positivity perspective um I really did not care at all what I looked like as long as I was hitting the right numbers and having fun and making the boats you know I barely even thought about what my clothes size was or anything like that and that was great until I got to university and I guess then you start taking that next step on of trying to make the next level up and the under 23s and I had quite a sort of bumpy ride with my body image through you know I was injured in my first year of university I put on quite a lot of weight I was then trying to lose that to get back into the boat and it as a collective you know as a squad we were always looking to try and go faster and we were weighing in every single day and you're doing all of those performance wow. measures right in that you have like you know you have a daily check-in and and it's as much for anything like you know hydration through to resting heart rate weight was one of those factors and so 
then trying to <laughs> trying to lose weight when I felt really comfortable about the way my body was and I was performing really well you know I was hitting really good you know I got a PB2 get 2k going into my third year at university so like I knew I was strong and I knew I was performing well but there was a sort of conscious effort for us to be as lean as possible and so yeah I've never been as as lean and athletic as I was at that point in my life but I just remember feeling like I still had more to go and that you know if I could lose those extra couple of kilos then the boat would go much faster and um there were a lot of people around me you know again we had quite a big lightweight squad at Durham at the university and again like just being around everyone who is very conscious of that and all quite competitive and quite performance minded the thing with rowers is everyone takes everything to its limits right I don't know if you found this amongst all the people that you've probably spoken with is that they take everything a bit too far right they take (laughs) academics too far they take their work life too hard they take socializing too hard and this was no exception right it was a case it was just a, a I just remember feeling like I was still not light enough when I was as light as I ever have been in my life. And I, you know, I look back now and think, Camilla, were you crazy? Like I look at pictures of myself racing in that sort of second, third year of university. I think like, what were you thinking? And like, you should have been so happy with how you were feeling and performing, but all you were focused on was losing an extra two kilos to make sure that the boat was as fast as it could go. And I don't want to say it was like an unhealthy obsession because it, it wasn't, you know, I, I've always been fairly, I don't want to say commonsensical because I know some of these things are out of people's control, but, you know, I've always been fairly pragmatic about what I eat, not being silly and making sure that I feel my body correctly. But there was always those kind of, oh, well, what ifs and what is everyone else thinking if I'm not cutting back on what I'm, you know, eating after a session or if I'm not, you know, weighing myself to ensure that I have, I am losing that weight that I've said I'm going to lose to make sure that the whole crew can rely on me. There was always those thoughts in my mind, even if I didn't act on them. And I, you know, I shouldn't have been feeling like that. So yeah, I think it's it's tough because you have again, it's another fine line between performance and because, because ultimately, you know, rowing's a power to weight sport and you can't shy away from that. And it does ultimately impact how fast you go. But at university level, being able to fine tune you know other things and focus on good nutrition or focus on other things that isn't solely you just need to lose this weight to make the boat go faster I think is far healthier in that kind of development process than just focusing on that one thing but look I I think I know that it's got its benefits of being as lean as you can be and it's just finding the right way to to think about it and now I really could not care less about what I look like I'm so so happy you know I'm probably 15 kilos heavier than I was five years ago but I enjoy my exercise I enjoy I enjoy just not really thinking about what I'm I'm eating I enjoy eating healthily but I also yeah enjoy having a treat and I've not weighed myself for about five years probably because of that kind of sensation of weighing in every single day I'm just like do you know what I really I know it's going to be you know a lot bigger than the number that I was seeing back then so why should I care about it really as long as I like the clothes that I'm wearing and I can go out and and have a good time like 
I don't care what anyone else looks like. And I think it's finding that perception, you know, knowing that I think that about other people that I don't care. It's remembering that that's the same in reverse. It's an interesting topic, though, isn't it? Because the more you delve into it, everyone has such a different way of of thinking about it, right? So if you could go back and talk to your 20-year-old self with the perspective you've got now, what would you say to her on that subject? Oh, just push back and ask the right questions. And this is something that I've been thinking a lot about in the last kind of six to 12 months, not just on body positivity with weight and body image, but also health issues. You know, I had a great chat with Baz and with Kat Copeland about, you know, female health within rowing and looking back to my 20 year old self, just ask questions and look after yourself and tell people when you're having these thoughts that potentially, I don't want to say are unhealthy thoughts, but you don't know the answers to the questions. Don't feel afraid to speak up because I think I'm quite introverted in that sense in that I don't like talking about taboo subjects. I don't like, I've always really shied away from topics of like weight and female health issues. And I've always felt a bit odd talking about that. And now, you know, eight years on and maybe it's just a bit more of maturity or a bit more life experience. But I look back and think, you know, just go and talk to that coach about the way that you're internalizing these worries about losing these two kilos or go and talk to one of the other girls in the boat about how you're feeling and say, actually, are you feeling like this too? And maybe we should say something. And and as a group of us, think about how we can support anyone who's not as willing to speak up. And yeah, I think that's maybe lessons learned over the last few years of having conversations with others who have felt the same way and not realizing that everyone goes through a kind of similar phase I think of this experience of discovering how you feel about your body and and looking after it so yeah I think that's what I'd say to my 20 year old self. That's wise advice to her. (laughs) (laughs) So you retired from rowing after was it after the after the world junior championships or was it a bit later than that? So I rode at Durham for the few years and and kind of tried to make the under 23 squad when I was at Durham University. I was president of the club in my final year, did that thing that I was just saying where I did everything on 100 miles an hour, was trying to be president, make the under 23s and finish a degree (laughs) all in 2014, which, you know, again, looking back now, I think, how did you ever even think about doing that when I struggle at the moment to get myself up in time to go to work and back and then maybe squeeze you know a bit of exercise in a day (laughs) and I think did you have more than 24 hours in a day at that point (laughs) but um yeah after that I then took a bit of a break when I didn't make the under 23 squad I went through that real arms folded chest puffed out don't ever want to see boat ever again really disliked this you know I'm I I was on the wrong side of squeaking into the boat that time right I was hoping to be the last seat into the under 23-8 that year I'd been in the crew for a lot of the the sort of practice time on the lead up to the champs which were in Varese and then a last minute kind of seat race and everything saw me pushed out of the boat with one week to go and that was my real kind of point of going I've been doing this too long you know I've I've started as a junior I've been doing this for at that point 10 years 
what's it all for really I was like why am I still doing this my body's kind of got to the point where I was like I'm not going to go any faster on my 2k I don't really want to be training twice a day every day I should probably go and find a job in the real world so I toddled off down to the grad fair at Durham after doing a bit of time I went back to doing a bit of coaching rather than racing and rowing and training and I, I set up the learn to row program for Durham that year that was my job to wield those 400 freshers that we get that stick their hand up and want to get in a boat to some kind of basic level of technique before they go back to row for their colleges at Durham or we take them on into the the beginner squad at the University Boat Club and that sort of reignited after that brief time away where I was like oh I really dislike this and never want to do it again I, I got back into coaching and really enjoyed teaching others the sport that gave me that enjoyment of sports um, because I just hadn't found that before and that was really nice and that was the link for me to stay involved with rowing because I think at that point if I'd have not done that at that point in time and taken that job I'd have probably never come back to the sport ever again I'd have been one of those statistics of people that fall off at 21 and then don't find it again until they're 40s 50s 60s because they go away get a grad job and then don't have time for it and so that job for me was a real nice stepping stone into just keeping in a hand in and keeping involved with rowing and I did I did go back to doing a bit of training when I moved to Edinburgh I raced uh, for St Andrew Boat Club um, at Women's Head in 2018 um, I had a really nice group of girls that I trained with there and that was you know that was that nice balance between training regularly with a group of athletes who a group of women who wanted to perform really well at the head and we wanted to win the uh, small club pennant again as they'd done the year before and so we had a really nice goal and I really enjoyed that and that was fantastic so that was my last foray into a boat was about 2018 but I've not touched one since um I've just not really I've moved down to London and kind of got a bit caught up in being in a big city and you know working and commentating and the like and I haven't managed to squeeze in any rowing since I've been down here for the last three years but I no doubt I will find it again Patricia. (laughs) And what seat ideally what seat would you be in assuming we're talking about an eight would you Um, would you reprise your role in the three seat or is there another one you prefer? Now when I was at university I loved being in the middle of the boat I was like a real I know I'm probably the opposite to you having listened to a lot of these podcasts right where you're <laughs> I'm at the pointy end yeah <laughs> and I, I'm like a right in the action loved being like five seat or six seat I was a stroke sider so obviously depending on which way the boat was rigged but I just loved being in those kind of seats that transferred the rhythm and you could have someone to follow I was never a rhythm setter I really disliked being anywhere near the front which I quite like being at five but as a stroke sider you rarely got that opportunity I was really lucky that at Durham a really good rhythm setter was a bow sider so we always had the boat rigged the other way around and so loved sitting in the five seat but yeah that that for me is home just like being nice and snug tucked in there with everyone around me nice and safe (laughs) I don't know what to do with all the space in the middle of the boat you sit there and it's just so wide it's like oh god more space for wellies though you know that's true especially if you're rowing on the tine or on the tideway you've got loads of room for all your kit and all your wellies you're you're well set up I could bring quite a lot with me and And wellies are a great cup holder they're very underrated as a cup holder (laughs) 
anything holder they just keep everything waterproof you know chuck your base layers and everything in there when you boat and then they stay yeah. nice and dry if you if the hatch cover's too tight because the person before you's you know sort of tied it on to <laughs> but strength in the sort of last session and you're there trying to bash it off I'm like oh wellies will do just yeah wellies in the football. <laughs> so let's move on to commentating how did you get started so uh, I got started actually if I tell the story of how I actually first picked up a mic it's probably in very similar circumstances to what you've described Patricia in, in sort of the few instances you've commentated at is I was at Evesham Regatta fan favourite of uh, of us in the Midlands and there was a commentator a guy called Robin Walker who had done a bit of commentary at the World Championships when they were at Dorney in 06 and had sort of done quite a bit on the national stage with either the British Rowing Championships or whatnot and he was an Evesham Rowing Club member and I'd known him because I'd been racing in this single skull. And when you're a single sculler at junior level and you keep turning up to the same local regattas, you kind of get to meet the same people. And so my parents had got chatting to him and he'd been commentating and asking about my rowing. And then I'd ended up kind of chatting to him and he was like, you should give this a go. You know, you've got quite a, a good voice for commentary in that my tone is quite a lot lower than a lot of other females. And so even as a younger girl, my voice hasn't changed too much. And so he was like, here you go. Have a microphone talk about these people crossing the line at Evesham Regatta so I stood in this you know tented VIP area you know the ones with the bunting around yeah just sort yep. of a piece of grass with a couple of white plastic chairs and tables and you know, cake on the side yeah that's our stood. setup in Monmouth <laughs> yeah I stood there on the finish line having no idea what I was doing and just kind of talking about whatever it was I talked about at that point in time I have no idea I got invited to do a couple of bits as a junior, but again, that was like joining Robin to do the Ball Cup regatta at Dorney, all very low key, like quite nice. And it was like a just have a go sort of thing. And it wasn't very formal or, or anything like that. And then put a pause on that, did all of my sort of junior performance rowing. And then after I finished at Durham, I got contacted about doing Bucks regatta because the team was quite light on the ground for some reason in 2015 and you know people were off at weddings or whatnot and and one of the sort of organizers of Bucks Regatta had got in touch with me and gone oh will you be around and do you fancy coming along and doing this and I was like well sure my my other half was rowing for Edinburgh doing a master's at the time so he was coming down anyway would have been nice to watch him I'd only just left university so I knew a lot of people at Durham still so I just thought it was quite a nice chance to go to Bucks and I love Bucks Regatta. It's one of my favourite regatta of all time. So yeah, went along, got given a microphone in the tower at the National Water Sports Centre and they went, okay, off you go. And again, because they were light on the ground, I'd ended up doing these like mega stints of just talking, like four or five hour stints of just like chatting about whatever was going on in front of me. And that was sort of the start of when I got asked back to do a couple of things and that was my first sort of bigger event as a solo commentator without you know having my hand held or just doing little snippets because again I'd done little bits at like the junior interregionals or at the British Rowing Junior Champs but that was my first kind of solo effort on the mic at a pretty big event and yeah it all sort of spiraled from there really and you end up getting invited so at 
Bucks, one of the organisers of Henley Women's was there and had sort of tapped on the commentary box and gone, what are you doing on the 15th and 16th of June this year? You should put your name, you know, you should come and we will make sure that you get invited to the commentary there. And you kind of just end up being involved in all these little break-off regatta organizing committee circles of people who need commentators because it is one of those jobs that you just end up falling into you do it once and then people just sort of get you on a list and you end up getting to more and more stuff and yeah that's how it started so yeah 2015. So did you get any training did anyone help you with it because I know when I've tried it I've really enjoyed it, but I was kind of making it up as I went along and I just sort of said the kind of thing that I'd heard other people saying and just sort of copied that. So how did you learn the craft? I mean, that is kind of the case all, <laughs> all the way. The, secret hipster, that's kind of the case the whole way through is that no one ever gives you any formal training, really, unless you ask, you know, you ask and you learn and you ask good questions, but you don't get sent on a course or there's no qualification to go, well, I'm sure I could go and do like a broadcast journalism qualification, but for rowing specifically, there's no bumper course at that point that you get sent on. You have to really proactively go and reach out to people and, and ask your questions. And, and, you know, if I was on a team, you'd get some good feedback from the people that you were commentating with who would say, oh, actually, you know, maybe you should try saying this or from a tone perspective, one of the traps that a lot of commentators fall into very early days is like every sentence goes up at the end and you do this all at the same time and you go up and again. And so things like that, that you you get pointed out to you, you learn through doing. A little bit later on when I kind of came to the world rowing stuff and, and got invited to do that, I did end up having a really good chat with Peter O'Hanlon, who does the tower commentary, who's absolutely excellent and so helpful. And he gave me a lot of really good feedback on some of my recordings and some things that I'd never really thought about before uh, in terms of audiences tuning in and what they're expecting to hear and, and how you can create atmosphere for individuals that aren't at the regatta, individuals that are there parents, rowing fanatics, and sort of tie all of that together to create this atmospheric support. You know, it underpins and you notice when it's not there. It's um, one of these strange things where I hadn't really realized how much it sort of underpins from a background noise point of view, everything that goes on at an event. I just thought that people kind of didn't really listen to me you know um, unless they were specifically watching one person in an event but you really do notice if there's no commentary on an event and it cuts out and it's just the pictures it adds a lot of value and it's learning what it is that people appreciate but every commentator is very different and so having your own unique sense of style as well is quite important and that's something that nobody can really teach you you just kind of have to find out what you enjoy commentating on so yeah. So you must it must be very very different when you know, the different types of events. So, you know, being up in the tower at a multi-lane event where you presumably can see the whole of the course from there and most of the people there can't, compared with when you're at, say, a local regatta where you can just see the bit that you could see through. Usually there's a bend or something, so you can only see, I don't know, maybe the last 750 at best or 500 and so you're just kind of adding a bit of color and explaining to people on the bank what it is that they are seeing 
so they know who it is and what it is. And then, of course, there's the live streaming, which you experienced at, was that the first time at the European Championships this year that you'd sort of not been there? Yeah, it was the first time I'd ever done the live stream broadcast because, and usually the guys that do the live stream still come to the event for world rowing. They're still there on the course and so can talk to you about the wind direction and the temperature and who they've spoken to at the event. But for the first time, it was remote and it was my first time doing the video broadcast as well combined with that. So, yeah, I mean, I've done, I've done um, like Henley Royal, for instance, which is, you know, live stream commentary, but it's a very different event side by side, different kind of course structure, different sentiment to it altogether as a regatta as to commentating on a, an international side by side six lane race. So yeah, you're absolutely right. It's trying to adjust your style is something that I think I think and I hope I do naturally. I I do prepare differently for each of those types of event and I don't do as much kind of local regatta sort of events anymore. They're kind of two lane side by sides at Stratford Regatta or Monmouth or or anything like that. But thinking even, you know, say I'm off to Lucerne in a couple of weeks time and um, the commentary setup we have at Lucerne is you get driven on a launch to a timing marker so when I was doing the Europeans in 2019 I sort of got dropped on the 1500 meter marker and they went okay have fun and so you can only see we have this kind of big tree overhanging the timing marker and you can only see your part of the course and so you're kind of relying on the commentator who's up at the thousand to hand over to you in a way that you understand where everyone is on the field because you still only get the angle that you're sat at and it's yeah learning to kind of perceive where boats are but also ensuring that you're giving accurate information to the next commentator as well it's uh it's quite daunting and and you're reliant when it's a tv one like you did at the europeans where you're completely reliant on the camera angle and so if they don't show the right thing then you can't there was one race wasn't there where you couldn't see what was happening at the end Oh, yeah, the women's single final. That was it, yeah. Where they had the camera after the finish line and showing all the scholars' backs. And you're kind of screaming out for it internally. And you obviously can't sit there going, change the camera. You just kind of have to keep talking and acting as if it's sort of a normal thing. And the guys that operate the cameras usually are fantastic, right? They're all really well trained and we get some really great pictures. But if they are ever so slightly out of the line of vision, even if it's side by side, you know, the catamarans that go alongside the course with the cameras on, if they're ever so slightly out, a canvas suddenly becomes half a length or three quarters of a length. And then they show the aerial shot. It happens to be at Henley Royal all the time, <laughs> all the time. I'm like, oh yeah, this crew is ahead by, you know, quarter of a length and then it pans to the drone shot and I'm like oh they've just made this really huge move and now they're three <laughs> of a length ahead um so yeah it does <laughs> one of the things I've kind of learned is like commentators are definitely not all knowing and all seeing they can see exactly the same thing that most other people can see on the live stream you just kind of learn I guess to cope with whatever angles you're given and get a little bit better at judging distances, which I have my experience of commentating at Henley Women's to thank for that because you do a lot of that commentating on the back of the launch where it's the worst angle in the world for guessing what the distance is. But 
year after year you keep coming back and you get better and better at judging you know what's a length and what's three quarters of a length and yeah it's um, it never changes regardless of whether you're at Monmouth Regatta or at, at the World Championship you find a way to make it work and you get thrown into very weird and wonderful commentary positions that can be incredible and you know the the sort of gold standard is we're in a car that drives along a nice flat road along the side of the course you know some of these new courses when we're in Tokyo obviously it's been built ready for the Olympics and it's this kind of very nice purposefully made commentary lane with this beautiful flat tarmac and you can drive right alongside the the boats that are going down and then at the other end you've got that position in Lucerne or Belgrade that's kind of at a meter marker because you can't drive alongside and you just have to get your two minutes and say what you've got to say and then pass it on so yeah it's it's different wherever you go and that's what makes it really quite interesting and exciting to prepare for. And what do you do when it must happen from time to time where there's just a really uneventful race where, you know, there's nothing surprising happening. It's kind of obvious who's going to win. How do you make that interesting? Uh, Actually, this is one of the things that when I applied for the world rowing position was one of the things that they actually tested was we got given a couple of clips to commentate on to submit and one was a really exciting it was the final of the women's eights at Sarasota at the world champs in 2017 which was so close barely anything between them and then the other one was like a cd semi-final of the lightweight men's single skulls where the field was as far apart you know there was like four lengths in between every single crew everyone was you know knew that they were progressing through in whichever way that they were and it was a bit of a kind of processional and because a lot of the the athletes were you know vying to get into an olympic boat being a lightweight men's single skull they didn't have you know a long track record that because that's a very easy way of kind of filling time right is if you've done your research you can talk about you know whether an athlete's improved on a previous performance or any blips that they've had in their their training or anything like that that sort of backstory element that you get with a lot of those athletes that have been in the sport for a long time whereas if you've got a race where a lot of athletes are either brand new so they don't have any career at senior level that's of note or they just haven't quite made it into the crews that have been you know selected to go to the championships you then have to talk I think what I find is talking about the event as a whole and being able to paint a picture of the the level that these athletes are at. Because again, the, there will be people tuning into those boring races. If it's a boring final, you know, they could be vying for the 17th and 18th places overall in the world for their country. And it could be a massive improvement or it could be the first time that they've ever sent a boat to a particular championships. And you you do find those stories, you know, even in two boat races. I just I remember when we were at Linz for the Olympic qualifiers ready for Tokyo, you know, the world champs in 2019 qualifies boats for the, the next Olympic Games. So 2020 at that point. And we had some finals that were two boat finals of countries that had sent a single scholar to try and qualify the boat for the Olympic Games. And there were just some amazing stories about, you know, some of these international federations that had only set up for the first time. It was the first time they'd ever sent a crew. There were some really interesting stories about where people trained, you know, 
people who were from a certain nation that trained in another place and were coached by someone really interesting. And they just, they develop, they're there. And that's, I guess, where a lot of the preparation comes from on our part. And, you know, I work with some really incredibly informed commentators, right, between Crossy between Martin Cross and Robert Hart, Trahan Jones and and Pete, like everyone has been going to these events for so much longer than I have. And so I get these nice little nuggets where we'll all share stories of what we've seen on social media or throughout different regattas. And it's great to have that sort of knowledge fountain because once you've been to championships, you store the results so much more easily. I don't know if you find that I'm a very visual learner. So if I'm there and I'm at something, if I've seen a result happen, in front of me, I can remember that for a long time, whereas I'm not much of a book learner. You know, I can't sit and read and take it in and, and remember that that person was 12th at World Cup 3 in 2011. I, you know, I have to have it in front of me. But once I've been to a regatta and I've, I've kind of watched it happen, and that's where I rely on a lot on RTJ and, and Crossy and people who have been to all these regattas, they remember all these results to bring those kind of stories to life. So yeah, it's kind of a, a communal effort, I'd say, in, in when we get those kind of races that aren't the most awe-inspiring or, you know, close, close-knit races that we sort of all share the information to, to bring it to life. So presumably throughout the year, you keep a bit of a, a weather eye on the national teams around the world and who's doing what and who's sort of saying what on social media, that kind of thing. Yeah, I think if anyone was to go through my like Instagram, like followed lists or like my Twitter, people I follow on Twitter, they'd be wholly, (laughs) I think, wholly impressed by the amount of rowers that I've ended up following just through going, oh yeah, I should probably keep an eye on them or they're quite active on social media. And often, again, I'm so glad that um, all of these social media sites have translation functions now because I again as a commentator people go you must know a language right you must speak another language I was not a linguist at school either you know as much as I wasn't an athlete I was not a linguist and so I've <laughs> always really struggled with that element. and so I'm on Twitter and on Instagram like translating all of these posts to make sure that I'm not saying the wrong thing yeah I'd seen that um, Chettle Borch had like been in a hospital at some point and posted it quite close to the um to the European Championships and I'd messaged Robert being like is Chettle Borch racing because he just posted something about being in hospital and he was like Camilla he was talking about months ago you know that was a poster and I was like oh, I probably should have translated that and, <laughs> and understood that this was him looking back on an injury um so yeah it's um I do end up kind of I don't want to say obsessing luckily my fiance is also quite into rowing so we can have these discussions at home and it doesn't drive him up the wall that I'm like (laughs) have you seen what this person's doing and have you looked at this video and he's he's doing that as much as I am which is great um otherwise I think yeah it would be a very one-sided relationship from that respect and I just have to keep it all to myself but yeah it's been good throughout um throughout lockdown as well just being able to kind of share those tidbits with someone who's as interested as I am and he always kind of ships me off to events with various bits that he's seen too which is quite nice. So presumably in the heat of the moment you've got so much going on you're having to you know make it interesting you're having to keep on top of it there must be mistakes that that creep in Um, are there any that kind of make you shiver now when you think about them? Oh. A couple. I mean, at the time when you get the feedback that you've made a mistake or you know and you've said something, I think about it 
every day that I go back to the course for every day afterwards, I think I cannot make that mistake again. And I need to make sure I don't say that, or I need to make sure I don't pronounce that name incorrectly or use the wrong kind of term to refer to a nation or a country. And it does play on my mind a lot. And I do remember a lot of them, you know, more lightheartedly. I remember in my first kind of few years of commentating, I just left Durham and I was saying, you know, hopefully Durham win this race. And <laughs> I look back and I go, oh gosh, like such a rookie error. But I was obviously so passionate <laughs> that they were about to win Henley Women's that it just kind of heat of the moment went out the window. And, you know, it was just really excited to see them doing so well. And it was such a close race. But yeah, I guess on a more serious note, I only improve by learning from mistakes I guess as do most people right and you've got to make them in order to reflect and and understand where you've gone wrong to ensure that you don't make them again and I think after the Europeans I'd got a couple of bits of feedback from different people about being able to commentate on para rowing which is something that again I have no experience with as personally as an athlete but as a commentator that doesn't matter right you should be able to commentate on things that you've never done before if you do your research and and you you know your stuff and so I was I guess I was quite mortified that I'd made the mistake I had about I I talked about a classification that didn't exist and so therefore I knew it as soon as I'd said it and I knew I'd made the mistake saying that you know for instance hearing loss is part of the PR3 classification which it isn't and I had had that feedback afterwards from not only a couple of people like members of the public but also from world rowing and so I was keen to make sure that I didn't make that mistake again and it yeah it does play on your mind you think gosh why did I even say that like I really do need to sit down and make sure I have that in front of me next time of like I'm absolutely right about what I'm saying about this particular boat or these particular athletes or or the way that this event works well the pa- the para and adaptive rowing categories are fiendishly complicated I I looked them up I can't remember why but I looked them up recently and I was really astonished by the range, but also, you know, it's quite complicated. Sometimes within the crew, you have to have a certain makeup and yeah. So I can see that it would be very easy to make a mistake, but at the same time, it's really important to get it right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that I'd also, again, before I'd commentated at my first world championships in 2019, I'd not really done a lot of Paralympic classified, properly classified PR1 to PR3 events. It was the first time I'd really commentated in a very um, high pressure situation on those events. You know, there were Paralympic qualification spots on the table for these athletes. And so I'd sat down with one of the, the girls that works at World Rowing, who I know quite well, and she does a lot of the para classification kind of write-ups and I kind of said look you know please help me I really want to make sure that I do everything justice and I've been a I've been an athlete on the able-bodied side obviously I don't have an impairment I I just need to understand what is the best way for me to make sure that I broadcast these races in the best way I possibly can and sort of inclusive messages we're trying to bring from that perspective are actually more so about how different athletes within each of these categories are rowing quite differently because I think that's one of the really like stark things that people see when they watch a PR2 race for instance and some athletes are using part of their kind of glutes and their legs and other athletes don't have any use of those muscle types or they can lean much further in forward in the boat or they can 
draw much further back. And those differences and disparities between different styles is something that we want to make sure that people are really well educated in, you know, why is it that we're moving more towards categorizing people, PR1, PR2, PR3, rather than arms and shoulders, trunk and arms, legs, trunk and arms, because that really doesn't, you know, just using those three muscle groups or those three parts of your body or two parts of your body or whatever is not really an accurate description of the the range of movement that these athletes have. And so that was something that's really kind of been for me a focus, but then there's, there's so many other things as well that I guess I've still got such a long way to go in making sure that I know absolutely everything and, and that I'm educated when I, when I'm broadcasting um, that don't say something unless you absolutely know that it's the right thing to say. And you do kind of heat of the moment, sometimes say things and then go next time. I'll never say that again, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's been a really interesting journey. because I've loved learning about, and it will be the same if I have to learn any new sports as well. I've only ever known rowing really as described wasn't very sporty anyway I love sport in general but I've never really done any other sport to any other level so yeah learning different elements of different sports is going to be something that I'm I'm keen to do and, and want to do so yeah I'm always in awe at the Olympics of people like Claire Balding who just have such a breadth of knowledge and obviously I'm sure there are probably mistakes that that she makes occasionally, which I wouldn't pick up on not knowing the sports in question. But just that that extraordinary breadth of knowledge of so many sports, it's incredible. So I've got a few a few questions in from listeners. One has asked about how to commentate compassionately when there's say you've got a, a a two horse race as it were and one crew is losing really really badly it's something that i think going and commentating at junior events is a really good way of being able to instill some good practices within this because it is it's really difficult to not talk about the obvious that there is a crew that is trailing by a huge margin but I think from commentating at things like the British Rowing Junior Champs or the Junior Interregionals being able to find the the ways to talk about athletes who this is maybe you know their first race or it's maybe the only time that they're racing that day or that weekend and they've got parents on the bank or they've got coaches who have worked really hard to bring this crew to this event when you you think about the wider audience and what they want to hear they want to hear their name called you know as much as the person who's up in first and going to win the gold medal and so I think even giving a crew a full name check and talking about what is going really well in that crew and you know being able to talk if you know anything about their club or being able to promote what they're all about I think is what I tend to go back to and and again it it talking about two horse races not just at the junior level but going back to like Henley Women's and Henley Royal um there have been so many races that I've commentated on that have been five plus lengths to a crew. And I think there's a, especially at Henley Royal, there's a trap sometimes of talking about the Mahe Drysdale, who's leading by 20 lengths over single sculler from Agecroft Rowing Club. And 
that person is going to be knocked out and never spoken about again for the next five days. But Mahe Drysdale is probably going to go on, well, in most years anyway, to the final. And giving that crew their due kind of commentary, being able to use whatever preparation that you've got, giving them their airtime. Again, going back to what I said earlier about there's always a story, there's always something to talk about, whether that's the individual athlete or the club, being able to bring that to life for whoever is tuning in to watch that person. I've been there where I've tuned in to watch one of my friends racing or watch a team that I really like and they're never talked about because they're, you know, they're way off the pace or they're not even in contention. And even just to hear a name check, you know, it sort of lifts your spirit. If you're that person's connection or relative or whoever, it's just being able to give them that moment rather than to tear them down anymore and talk about how terribly they're doing because that's just not constructive in any way is it really and it's quite demoralizing so you know thinking about the other people that are are out watching and and being able to give them their moment and I've got one question from someone who I know does quite a lot of commentary and she's asked do you have a favorite bit of essential equipment that you bring with you to events oh this is a really good question. What is a really good piece of essential equipment? Well, personally, it's my little green book, which I actually have with me right in front of me on my desk, which is my commentary Bible, and I cannot go anywhere without it. And it was a tip I was actually given by Peter O'Hanlon when I first started doing world rowing stuff, which was keep a little notebook of every little thing that you hear or you see that you really like, because you'll go back to it and you'll remember it. And I've got pages in this book which are ways to describe the weather interestingly or how to pronounce a certain nationality's verbs or certain letter combinations and adjectives to describe certain race scenarios because again I've I've been in those moments where I've thought oh, I've said that this is a really close race for the fourth race on the bounce now. I really need to find a new way of saying that. Um, And so I've just been kind of jotting down things that I hear, all the other commentators that I'm with at any event use or even, you know, non-rowing events. And so this just goes with me everywhere and it's got random tidbits about certain events and courses and and all sorts of stuff so my little green book is probably from a personal perspective uh from a technical perspective in terms of just like practical things I just think a backpack with a good laptop pouch is something that I've really appreciated because you never know where you're going to (laughs) be whether you're like on the side of a on the side of the lake on a wooden set of boards kind of clinging on by your fingertips on the edge of the water or you're in a nice swish car just having something that can carry all your stuff well and waterproofed and you know not having to worry about carrying multiple things and dropping them into the water or you know hauling them onto a boat to be able to get to your commentary location I think that's something that I take with me everywhere. And what would your top bit of advice be to somebody who maybe has done a little bit of commentating just at local level and either wants to improve the way they do it or to progress to uh, more prestigious events? I think going back to the point about asking good questions and good feedback and and being self-aware and self-reflective and kind of appraising how you've done certain things and spoken at certain events and 
rowing is so fantastic and you'll know this yourself it's so good for community and being able to just reach out to anyone right over a twitter message or um grabbing them a, a regatta for a cup of tea and just going hey like what can I do next? And, you know, can I come and commentate at the Bucks Regattas or the Henley Women's and, and give me some feedback? Because it's genuinely learning by doing and going right back to that first point about you've, you've just got to go out and not have any inhibitions about getting things wrong. Because like I say, we all get things wrong all the time. You know, I'm, I put my hands up to it and I still get nervous about doing that, but you do just have to kind of forget about the fact that there's people listening and just say what you say, see, you know, be passionate about it. If you really do love rowing, talk about what you love about rowing and it will come across in your voice and all the technical bits you can ask about, you can ask about, you know, is there any way that I can improve my pacing throughout an event and improve my sort of crescendoing to build momentum and you can't teach, I guess, enthusiasm and passion, but you can kind of teach everything else. So as long as you come with that and you go and do it and you put your hand up to, to go and do those things, there will always be someone there that will be able to, to help you, you know, introduce you to the next thing or give you a bit of feedback. And one final question. Are you going to be going to Tokyo and what are your expectations of, of how that's going to be? Um, I don't want to jinx it. I was due to go last year. Um, I'd kind of got all of my official paperwork all done before the Games last year in 2020. And then, well, we all know what happened there. It was kind of torn up in front of my eyes. And so still waiting this year. I mean, we're hearing fairly positive things that everything's going ahead and, and fingers crossed I, I should be. All things going well, resuming that offer that I had last year to go out. In terms of expectations, it's odd. I, I kind of feel, I don't want to say I feel similar to athletes who will be going to their first Olympics because it is very different, I guess, working at an event and competing to become, you know, an Olympic, to become an Olympian, full stop. But I, I kind of feel there are some elements where I'm thinking it's not going to be a normal games and I'm not going to get the experience that perhaps other people will have got in Rio or London or any other Olympics before that, that you know, we won't be able to leave the hotel. You will only be able to go to the venue and your hotel room and eat at the hotel. And you don't get to do that sort of exploring and meeting the athletes and, and all of the surrounds. It is just, you turn up, you race and, and you decipher the places. And so we've got to find a way to bring that atmosphere. You know, if we are, if we are going, that is one of the things that with limited crowds and, and spectators and only local spectators, if if that does happen, we're going to be really responsible for a lot of the atmosphere and creating that when we're kind of siloed as well and not able to have that interaction is going to be challenging. But yeah, it's uh, I guess with all things, go in with no expectations and get the lay of the land and, and, and hope for the best. <laughs> well, I hope with every fiber of my being that it will it will go ahead and that it will all go really really well for everybody involved and just want to say a huge thank you it's been so fascinating talking to you i've thoroughly enjoyed it i've learned a huge amount and your passion for 
the sport and for commentary is just coming off you in waves. It's just wonderful. So huge thank you. Oh, no, thank you so much for having me. It's been really wonderful to chat and your your questions are just fantastic, Patricia. I just think about so many things that I've I've never thought about before. So no, thank you so much for having me on. I'll be really interested to hear if any of you have been inspired by this interview to have a go at commentating or to take some steps to progress your commentating further. So do let me know if you have done this. You can find me at Girl on the River on all channels or by email at girlontheriverpodcast at gmail.com. My next episode will come out during the Tokyo Olympics, which is pretty apt as my guest is Wendy Martinson, who is the lead nutritionist for the GB rowing team. We had a really fascinating discussion about fueling our national rowing team and about sports nutrition in general, so do look out for it. In the meantime, I hope you have a great couple of weeks. And until then, next stroke, easy or.